Welcome to the 101st episode of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And kind of today is the uh, anniversary show simply because when I started in the military, I I wanted to serve. The first unit I wanted to serve in was the 101st Airborne Division. Well, I never got there. I went somewhere else instead due to the needs of the Army. So... It took me a couple of decades, but the last thing I did in the army was serve with the 101st, and that was that was in Iraq. So um, I was pretty fortunate. I finally got to the 101st, and I have a 101st uh, Airborne Division right shoulder patch, which in the army that signifies a a unit you've been in combat with. So it's it's all worked out. I get to keep that patch forever. So that's that's pretty cool. Pretty. We've got some interesting stuff this podcast, and as you know, this podcast is kind of in three parts. The first part is pop culture as it as it affects gun and Second Amendment rights. Um, the next part is stuff that's out there in the in the content creator world, the gun culture world. That's the media that's out there, and. Um, You know, the last thing is my favorite, which is questions and answers. So there are a few other little things that get thrown in there too, but uh, those are basically the three major segments of the show. And to kind of keep this organized, I'm going to start off with actually a question that was asked of me after the last podcast where I pounded on the reputation and the professional competences of one each Greta Thunberg who testified before Congress is why am I so hard on celebrities, celebrity culture, and well-known people uh, when they express their opinions? And the, the answer to that is there's, there's several reasons. Um, that's not the only person I've pounded on. I've pounded on a whole bunch. But I don't like it when people use their fame as a springboard for their kooky politics. And that happened with Marina Sirtis, or Sirtis, whatever her name is, this washed-up, Star Trek actress who, you know, said some really ugly things about people after uh, uh, the storms and, and things in Texas. I mean, people people actually lost their lives. And, you know, a little bit of civility and humility might have been um, a little better on her part. <clears throat> I nail on the stuff Thunberg says because, frankly... You know, I, I already summed it up, and I already summed it up in very plain old school terms who and what she is, and the fact that she's been, in my opinion, a, a, uh, really a character who's suffered abuse. So, but I don't think that that person should have a bigger say in my government than I or anyone else I know. I mean, she just doesn't, just because it's trendy to listen to some of these people doesn't mean they know what they're saying you know and it's bad enough we have to suffer the other fools such as lebron james and we've kind of we've kind of talked about him a couple times but you know he's he's another guy who doesn't have the education doesn't have the experience and the stuff he's doing is is particularly incendiary and uh, he got caught and had to pull down his his tweet why any of these people have Twitter accounts is beyond me. The smartest thing you can do is make your money and put it in the bank and enjoy life. But instead, they all want to be social commentators. And look what they've turned professional sports into. Professional sports is a garbage bin. It's a garbage bin. 
I don't know anybody who's really excited over baseball anymore. I mean, I just don't. I mean, um, professional baseball may go... I, I think if things keep going the way they are with professional baseball, it's extinct in 10 years, at least as we know it today. Maybe it just comes out to there's some big super minor league or something, but, um, you know, baseball is, is gone extinct. It's, it's going that way. Now they'll probably do some, maybe they'll do something, have somebody, have some other steroided up guy hit a home run, make a home run record or something. But, um, you know, the, the way baseball as a game has changed for the worse in many ways and it 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 doesn't really fit in with what people do anymore used to be that you could spend a few bucks go to a sunday game and you know that's kind of how you could spend an afternoon if you know you wanted to spend a few dollars now it's expensive it's a hassle there aren't the cheap bleacher seats anymore um on and on and on and you know a lot of these players are are who they are and a lot of them it's you know one of the things that's changed in baseball is you know the owners used to kind of almost own the careers of the players and i'm not saying that was right but now we just have mercenaries go to the highest the highest cash offering so the the guy who you were cheering for for two years as a first baseman now plays for your arch rival because they offered him some more money you know and I think they've screwed up. I think all professional sports has screwed up these salary caps. That's a way they tried to control cost. But I think they've contributed to this kind of mercenary mentality of who's got room in the salary cap. And that's who I'm going to go play for because I can get more more money. So we'll see what happens. <clears throat> we will definitely see what happens with professional sports. But I know one thing. Neither the owners, the managers, or the players are very smart. They're just not very smart people. And, um, you know, it's going to come back to haunt them. I think it's really going to come back to haunt them. Pro football just had, in, in my opinion, a brush with corporate death with this, the kneeling and all that. And a lot of people have basically said, hey, we're done. We're not ever going to have anything to do with professional football again over that. And uh, I, I'm basically one of them. I, don't, I never really followed it. You know, I... With me, sports was something I followed as a kid and as a young adult. But, you know, I've just lost track of it, lost anything with it. It's just not exciting. It's so time-intensive. I can't be one of these guys who sits down and wastes all weekend watching football or baseball games. I just don't have that kind of time. There's too many other better things that I like to do. And getting there, we got to talk about what everybody has been talking about the 50 caliber rifle explosion i mentioned it at in the other my last podcast but and i really don't want to go kind of over it but you know having seen the how horrific that is and i'm really i'm really glad that 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 poor guy is surviving i mean he's he's gone through a lot of personal pain i mean his face bones in his face were broken He's lucky he didn't lose an eye. Boy, if that isn't an advertisement for wearing uh, iPro, I don't know what is. And good iPro, not just, you know, cheap iPro, but good iPro. That's a uh, that's a great advertisement for that. Uh, then then of course the the uh, parts of him that were that were cut and you know just you know 
getting his jugular vein lacerated and and everything and the the scarring that you see and we haven't even seen what his hand looks like i imagine that's that's probably pretty ugly too but i'm glad that you know at least he's got the prognosis of a of a good recovery i would be surprised though i'd be very very surprised if he does not have some lasting uh problems from that that is that is serious you know and a 50 caliber is a serious weapon uh before we get into that you know you have to be careful with some military kind of former military surplus stuff and it, it kind of reminded me of there was a case about four or five years ago maybe longer i think it was i think it was 2016 2017 um there was a tv show called tank overhaul and one of the features they had was a guy who was restoring an m18 hellcat which was a a tank destroyer it looks like a tank has kind of an open top turret and it had a um, 76 millimeter gun and these things were made in world war ii to to kind of knock out the heavily armored enemy tanks that they would run across plus they they were also kind of assault guns you know they if any kind of fortification they could bring one of these up it was it was really good self-propelled kind of direct fire artillery to reduce points of resistance this guy had one he was in oregon and they were getting ready to fire it. He had, it was all registered. His gun was a live gun. It wasn't like so many of them where the, the gun has been rendered uh, inoperable and it just drives around and it's got still got the barrel and everything. It looks like a tank, but it doesn't fire. This one actually fired. And uh, that went off and they were firing some, and, and again, somebody made the rounds for them and and uh, they were supposed to be doing some sort of live firing demonstration or test or something and there was an internal explosion and you know the the guy who owned the thing plus one of his assistants who was kind of a teenage kid who was late teens 18 or 19 uh, they were both killed inside that turret and they did you know the usual forensics and they still i don't think really know exactly what did it it was either the round was either somehow inappropriate with its pressure curve and, and did some damage or or it was the turret ring because this guy kind of pieced not turret ring um, the breech ring of the gun this guy kind of pieced the gun together from two different ones you know always a bad idea when you're talking about artillery um, type systems you know that, those things take a lot of pressure those are those are serious that's pounds of propellant pounds of it um, but anyway, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. You have to be careful what you put in to the breach of your gun. And to most of us, that's just kind of common sense. But to a whole new generation of shooters, they've never lived through, you know, kind of the surplus craze where, you know, the Turkish uh, 8mm came in and people found out it was, hey, it was way hot. It was cracking gun stocks. And, and if you fired it in your Hakim or your FN 49 it would destroy the gun it was never made for that kind of uh, um, those guns were never made for those kind of cartridges just wasn't the pressure was too great other things that's happened is there have been uh, surplus nine millimeter that was made for submachine guns that would uh, beat your pistol pretty hard uh, other things that are out there is you know machine gun ammo machine gun ammo a lot of times might look identical to the same rifle round but it's not it's loaded 
higher. And one example of that is the French ball N, which I, I've talked about. Oh, it's it's been a long time, probably over a year. But, you know, hey, if you have a uh, LaBelle or Berthier rifle, it has to be marked ball N on the chamber for you to use that ammunition. They change the spec of the bullet. And if you fire that in an unaltered chamber, you're going to have pressure problems. And if you've ever seen a Berthier or a LaBelle, uh, they don't exactly ooze strength, if you know what I mean. They're, they're not something that you want to overtax. Yet this ammo will do it. It was only meant to be fired in these rifles in an emergency because it was predominantly um, supposed to be used in machine guns. And because machine guns can usually, because of the, the, the fact that they're a lot heavier and they operate when they're a lot dirtier, they sometimes need a little more powerful ammo to have you know, consistent, reliable functioning. The dirtier they get, the harder they are So to, to uh, keep operating. So if you have a little bit more powerful ammunition, they can go a little bit longer. But getting back to this um, Kentucky tactical guy and his exploding 50 caliber rifle, I mean, first of all, he had this unknown ammunition, these slap rounds, which really were kind of a sabo round that had a a smaller diameter penetrator inside, and they're they're loaded they're loaded up so that this thing comes comes screaming out of the barrel and would have a better performance on armor plate than say a regular ball 50 caliber would. And so this guy gets a hold of the, some of these things. And there's a reason the military, I don't know what the reason is, but I remember I was in uniform when they were fooling around with these things. I never saw any. But, you know, it was kind of an idea, then it went away. Obviously, it went away for a reason. And I would never have used these in a 50 caliber rifle because you just don't know how they're loaded. You've never seen them perform. Just because they're 50 cal and everybody thinks that they're safe, um, that that's no guarantee and uh, you know what what was this guy really doing anyway he was making a video where he's shooting holes in an old fire hydrant I mean come on I mean you know really really and um, so that's foolish the other thing was his choice of gun and I'm not I'm not beating up on the serbu guns I think they're kind of cool actually um, but that is the lowest and cheapest 50 cal you can get and it's a very simple design it's got the end cap which screws on and the tensile strength and all of those the strength of those threads and everything um, yes they're they're sufficient for ball m2 ammunition but i'm sure that the designer never intended that it would have proof style loads or these these very high uh, pressure loads put through it and it's just not made for that it's it's made as an entry-level 50 caliber gun and I mean it's nothing that would interest me but you unscrew the back off the it's it's got like a break action kind of like when you break an AR you know when you when you separate the uh, upper lower receiver but leave the uh, front hinge pin in and then you unscrew this thing off the back you put a cartridge in what is I guess a shell holder type arrangement and then it screws back on and you have to screw it in so far in order to be able to close the weapon and then it has a a firing mechanism that uh, that somehow goes through and, and makes all this work um, 
not a bad design I would never be interested in one because I think it's just too slow loading it has no if you just want to fire 50 caliber rounds which is what it's intended for it's fine it has no tactical or practical use beyond that it just too slow reloading it it almost is mus like reloading a muzzle loader you know that that kind of very slow loading process um, so that it's not really interesting to most people you can't really use it in any kind of competition or anything it's a low-cost gun design and, and I mean th these things cost probably 1500 bucks or maybe a thousand to 1500 bucks I think so it's not it's all relative terms what low cost means but in the 50 caliber world it's a low cost gun designed to go bang and what you sacrifice for the low cost is the simple construction and the slow reloading but this guy just you know just because the thing will fit in his chamber does not mean it's safe and he almost lost his life finding out on the podcast I've talked about hey I found a guy at a cowboy it was kind of a cowboy shoot I was helping and here comes up this motorcycle dude and I see him he's whittling on the front of his bullets and I go uh oh there's 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 some kind of problem here and I go up and his gun was an eight a Pieta 1858 Remington that had one of these little conversion cylinders in it and this conversion cylinder so it take 45 Colt and the 45 Colt ammo he had was HSM 300 grain they, they actually called them bear loads and if you know HSM they produce high I don't know if they're still around I imagine they are but they produce high performance ammunition not stuff meant for an 1858 Pieta those conversion cylinders are meant for very light cowboy loads yet to people who don't know this aren't into guns enough aren't paying attention or just frankly don't care if it fits into the chamber they'll shoot it and if it doesn't fit into the chamber this guy was whittling down the bullet so that it would that thing was a grenade if he had fired one of those rounds I have no doubt that it would have shattered the pistol and would have shattered everything um, that was kind of one of my deals I I started to hustle this guy off the range and I said look you know sorry you can't use that this can't work here's why I don't think he really fully understood I said we'll give you a refund to send you on your way and the guy who was running the shoot who was an old duffer he came up and gave this guy cowboy act some of his cowboy action reloads and I told him I said that's a mistake that's a freaking mistake because number one you're when you give somebody reloads you're basically saying that my procedures are so good that I don't make a mistake and none of these are overloaded none of these are gonna all of a sudden now if he has a problem with the gun and the ammunition since you gave him the ammunition you are now owning that problem so I would never have done that the other thing was the the overall optics of the situation with this guy were such that it, it would have been a lot better had he left uh, it just it just would have but this is the kind of stuff people will do people don't think uh, there used to be people who would you know try to hot load trapdoor Springfields you know they, they, why I do not know but they would uh, there were people who there are people who will hot load anything and um, it, it was absolutely amazing I knew another guy um, brief mildly distantly acquainted but he had ruined his Desert Eagle pistol by hot loading lead bullet reloads two things 
a Desert Eagle 44 will usually like warmer ammo, but that doesn't like lead bullets. So he wound up basically ruining his pistol with this stuff. Uh, I've known just on and on. I could literally sit here and talk for the rest of the podcast about people who've wrecked guns with bad ammunition. And most of it, most of it is ammunition they've made, but not all of it. Not all of it. And because something's military ammo and it's designed for a specific purpose, uh, were those rounds safe in it like an M2 50 caliber uh, machine gun? Um, possibly. But I've seen those go too. I've seen one of those let loose. And it was because uh, the the gunner and the assistant gunner were fools and they didn't headspace it correctly. And when they started firing it uh, with incorrect headspace, it blew out and took the gun out of the took the gun out of action so and it actually had to go away and be repaired so uh you you know sometimes sometimes guns are simple and you know our manufacturers have designed very strong good trouble-free guns and we've we've gotten kind of used to that and maybe a little complacent with it and we also have very good quality ammunition you know the only complaint about tall ammo or wolf ammo is that it's a little bit underpowered i mean that's a whole lot better than being overpowered over pressure so you know we're used to really good quality factory ammunition and all the rest of it and now where this leads us is down this road where we're in this ammunition shortage and we're entering the second year of the big ammo shortage <clears throat> we have Everybody and their uncle with a Dillon machine and who has any kind of components is cranking out ammo and they're selling it. I was in a gun store in southern Iowa and uh, there were just bags. And you can always tell this stuff. It's the old <laughs> it's the old baggies, you know, the old sandwich bags of, a, of 50 rounds a piece. And they're marked for 35 bucks. And this guy probably cranked them out on a Dillon and um you know there you go because he knows that normally these things would be worth five or seven dollars for hand loads if he is allowed to sell them you know you, you should have a proper license to make and do it but i i would imagine that a lot of people are doing it because that's such a a minor infraction and the the reward is great i mean if you can get 35 dollars for 50 rounds um, of nine millimeter and you can turn out 200 to 250 an hour i'm being kind of you know i, I know dylan's got all these oh you can do 600 rounds an hour or whatever whatever it is um but you know if you can turn out 200 rounds an hour you work for three hours you've got 600 rounds that's uh 12 times 35 that's a lot of money that's a lot of money um, it's a lot of dough and then the people are out there doing it people are out there doing it now when they run out of powder and primers they'll run out of primers first I mean that's kind of stuff will stop but um, that's all that is hitting the market there are a lot of hand loads that are hitting the market and face it if you have a nine millimeter pistol and that's the only stuff available um, that's mighty tempting to buy it but understand it's not coming out of a factory it's coming out of you know Joe's garage the other thing that's hitting the market, and I, I talked about this a little bit, is 
there have been a lot of people who bought and hoard ammunition and they have it they had this big and when the price gets so high they say hey I'll sell it I'll sell this stuff because even in 2019 you could buy tall 9mm ammunition or Tula ammo tall ammo I don't know how I don't know what they call that it's kind of like the Hornaday lever revolution I can never say it I always try to munch those words together but uh, you know but that stuff was selling for five to well probably six to eight and a half a box well now it's going for 25 a box so if you're sitting on 2,000 rounds of it it's there's natural that people are going to throw that out they're also going to throw out a lot of the older surplus there have been guys who've squirreled away surplus for 20 25 or 30 years so some of this stuff there could be surplus nine millimeter out there on the market that was made for submachine guns and you're buying it and putting it in your glock and then you wonder why a thousand rounds later your glock has got to go to the glock doctor because that stuff is too hot for pistols and you've just used a bunch of it now that's that's just the way it goes you got to be careful what you buy careful of what you put in just because it chambers in your gun does not make it safe now i've been hand loading for thousands of years it seems like and I've never really had a problem with the hand loads I've made but you know it's always a risk you're you're producing something with propellant an explosive primer that uh, that will kind of ignite propellant and push a projectile down the, uh, the barrel if you're not following the right loads you don't have the right components and you're not paying attention to what you're doing you could easily produce something that um, will damage the firearm and damage you and pistol ammo is usually the most benign because it's the least powerful rifle rounds can can do some damage but something like a 50 caliber um, can rip as you if you've seen that video that is no joke man that is that is a that is bad juju to the max so the word is the thing to learn from it is be careful and actually think about what you're doing producing a video so you get a bunch of viral views or it goes viral and you get thousands of views what's that really worth and and I don't think it should you should compromise your judgment just for that kind of a reward okay uh, this is kind of a note that came to us from our friend of the podcast and uh, the club we shoot at has a, a lot of different competitions there's a lot scheduled for this year but he was noticing that the three gun competition and has maybe it was just an anomaly or maybe it was more likely a symptom of the ammunition shortage um, it seemed to be about 25 maybe 30 percent of what it normally is and so this stuff is starting to affect now people are saying I don't really want to spend my rounds in competition and this is going to hurt the people who do competitions people who do training people who do a lot of things I've even heard that they've uh, that they've essentially kind of cut down in the qualification for some of the things like concealed carry licenses the number of rounds that you have to shoot has been reduced because there aren't a lot of rounds out there which is amazing because all these factories are are swearing they're producing stuff 
and I do see more stuff on the market I mean I'm starting to get the emails again from the different places that have this stuff a lot of it is IMI and some overseas manufacturers and uh, on some of the Facebook pages they'll say hey at so-and-so store and they'll they'll basically um, go ahead and you know have a picture of a whole crate of nine millimeter or a whole pallet of something else so it's it's out there but it's at probably two to three times the cost it's it's about three times the cost is what it really is so that's going to happen until the market saturates and the only thing that's going to get the market to saturate is if people stop buying it stop buying at the high price and then then it'll kind of go back down but um, it's amazing but it, there, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel I think by this time in six months I think it'll be a lot better and I think it and I'm hoping it'll be completely over with a year from now. So that is the effect of the ammo shortage. Something that, uh, you know, we knew was coming. We knew, we knew it was going to have some effect somewhere. And it looks like it's cutting into competition numbers. Okay, and one of our other uh, little tidbits in the epic fail of the week category. Um, and I mentioned this last podcast. They they went after LaPierre, Wayne LaPierre, the, He's basically the man in charge of the NRA. The, the NRA has kind of changed, and, and I'm not criticizing it so much. I'm kind of, I don't know. I don't know how I really feel about this. The, the NRA board is, is too large a body to be this kind of, you do it, you don't really get paid. They kind of bring you together once in a while. There's no consensus building. It's got like 75 members. It really doesn't do much. So the full-time staff of the NRA has got a lot of power. And that power is exemplified by Wayne LaPierre. He, he's the guy who's in charge. And he's the guy who, he came up in the 70s, fought the battles in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, brought Heston aboard. Heston, uh, you know, Charlton Heston was the last great, NRA president and probably the greatest one of all time I mean he's the only reason we have gun rights today Clinton was and the Democrats were determined and they got that assault weapons ban through and you know we had a couple really good great Americans as president Joe Foss you know Medal of Honor winner and all that but that guy had unfortunately Joe had no national um, he had really no national profile or anything and nobody really paid attention to him but hey Charlton Heston everybody knew he was a guy who had been in the movies and and all the rest of it so Charlton Heston was a very powerful spokesman and uh, you know he really kind of set him set the gun controllers back on their backsides and set it all up so that uh, um, you know a lot of the work he did kind of came to fruition when the assault weapons ban died in 2004 uh, I was at the NRA convention at Heston's last one he could barely speak it was it was a pretty tragic pretty tragic thing to witness but um, anyway LaPierre was the power behind that and since Heston they've all been figureheads and LaPierre's been the man well this 12 I know it's not 12 year old 2012 tape okay they go to Botswana they shoot it he and his wife shoot an elephant Hey, they, that's for a hunter 
and I don't know how big a hunter Wayne LaPierre is, but for a hunter, that's the that's the zenith of life, going to Africa and hunting and bagging an elephant is it. And you, you pay an ungodly amount of money to do that. And that money just doesn't, you know, go sit in some bank account. It, it It's the money that, that goes and it helps the locals out, you know, all the kind of guide businesses. There's a, a cottage industry of big game hunting in Africa and all the support that goes with that. Everything you have to rent and all the people you need to hire and the guides and all the rest of that really become very you know that, that that whole industry is is dependent on that and plus it's helping manage some of the game herds you know that there's only so much habitat and you can only have so many animals in there and so this is kind of a way that's done the way it's really done with wildlife management around the rest of the world um, anyway they they found the old tape of this and apparently wayne is not a great shot or a great hunter and the the professional hunter had to finish off the elephant and then they got a picture of Wayne LaPierre's wife cutting off the tail and you know and I I don't know you know it's not my deal it's not my thing but hunting is okay and uh, to try to use this you know eight nine years later as a smear just shows you that the depths that the Democratic Party anti-gun smear machine will go to I mean hey <laughs> they they stole an election they harassed a lawfully elected president you know with one bogus investigation after another and i've detailed all that and you know they'll they'll go after you they'll go back anything they can get they will try to do but this didn't seem to gather any traction because you know frankly i think age is something with a news story people don't get excited over something that happened in 2012 they just don't and uh Oh, you know, the, the easy way out to say, well, I would never do that today or whatever the whatever the rationale is. But I think they just they played it smart, which they don't always do. But this time they played it smart. Hey, they just didn't comment. And just like and the story just dies. It just doesn't. There's no place for it to go because there's no back and forth. So if he just kind of keeps a low profile for a while, it's it's totally gone. OK, another question that kind of came up and this isn't. Not a question that was asked of me, but it's always it's always amazing to me of whose fault is it? And uh, I have a lot of things to think about with this. It's you know when you miss a target, when you miss, when you when you're dealing, whose whose fault is it? And I know for me, I know who's behind all the misses. It's me. It's not the guns. It's not the ammo. It's not the scope. It's not the magazine it's not this it's not that it is me it is me now some things will perform better than others I will tell you that yes if I'm shooting at 15 yards I will shoot a much better group with a SIG P210 target than I will with a high point so equipment does matter and um, you know I I just don't want to think that uh, yeah, if I have a high point with Ethiopian surplus ammo in it, I'm not going to do as well as I am if I have some factory fresh, um, you know, 9mm NATO rounds that just came out of the Lake City plant or something. So, uh, yeah, but, but at a certain point, you have, to take, you have to take responsibility for your misses. 
same thing with you know and i'm sure that the shotgun shooters are the same way and and a lot of people shoot the same way i was kind of involved the guy was talking about his his rifle and he could never get it to shoot never get it to shoot then he switched rifles and was all of a sudden it was nirvana you know he it it validated the great shot this guy is and the previous rifle was embarrassing him and um i just kind of go you know it's there is some truth to that but when you're talking top end equipment is there really that much of a difference it really is there and i would say you know there is and there isn't and there's also equipment that is its reputation is bigger than it actually is um you know if you've got a scope and it's the same one the marine corps uses maybe you don't have the same scope maybe you have a scope that looks like that or is the civilian version but it may not be all the way what they have and it may not be it may be that that's not the greatest scope on the market just because they use it it may be because it has other attributes that they find find valuable so um i always think that if you practice basics and you practice and hold yourself accountable you will improve you you will you know and that doesn't mean you're going to be great it doesn't not going to turn you into a champion but at least it'll get you beyond the point where everybody's blaming equipment because you know i and this is with predominantly with rifles i mean there, there's a lot of guys who just want to this rifle won't shoot and it's like well maybe it will shoot but you have to you have to own your misses and maybe you got the wrong ammunition in it too but you know i always go back to 90 percent of people who say their equipment is bad it's not it's their equipment is good their ammo is good they just have to be patient and do it you have to make shots not take shots and that is knowing your scope knowing its limitations knowing holdovers for different ranges and none of us are perfect at it but you got to kind of realize sometimes sometimes you're the problem and not the equipment so that's that's kind of one thing that's kind of popped out um you know and trainers well sometimes they will they will they're so busy training techniques that they don't go after fundamentals i i think you know if you most people won't pay but they would be well served to go to a shooting school where you just learn fundamentals just learn fundamentals and uh because you know shooting knowledge is tough to pass among family members sometimes you know husband and wives you know it's sometimes that's tough um fathers and kids sometimes that's tough sometimes it, it pays have another have another source of information and uh and go and put the person in an environment um i i've just seen it too way too many times that um you know passing along your knowledge maybe just passing along bad habits unless you really are kind of grounded and believe in the fundamentals and uh, if the fundamentals are good everything else will take care of itself um, that was one of the things that was just drilled into me as an infantryman is if you can do these basic things if you can move shoot and communicate which are basics you know you have to be able to do those basics 
then you're going to be just you're going to be functional and fine you know you don't need to know necessarily how to repel down <laughs> the eiger you know the, the, like the eiger sanction you don't need to be you don't need to be super high speed but if you can do those basic things well you will you will be very effective in your job and if your job is hitting a target just go back and just hit fundamentals do some of the boring drills you know do some of the boring rifle drills and also check your equipment i can't i can't say enough how many times you know somebody say man my rifle isn't shooting one guy had a it was a 1903 springfield and he, he couldn't he was having a hard time getting accuracy out of it and it's like I looked at it and when he moved the rifle I saw the front sight move and it's like the front sight was just barely hanging on there and I have to be honest that has happened to me a few times not with a 1903 front sight but there was a couple times I would shoot I'd shoot a rifle and it's like man I'm, I'm I know my fundamentals are good my trigger squeeze is good I, I feel I feel really good about this I'm holding it yet I'm not doing it and I reach up and touch the scope and the scope wiggles and it's like oh no something's come loose so you know checking your equipment on you 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 have to check your equipment because it screws don't automatically always stay tight forever just because you've you've screwed them in um, things can come loose and things will come loose so own your mistakes check your equipment and uh, practice fundamentals and you'll go you'll go far okay got a couple of uh, things to update uh, one that one is is that um, due to a couple medical things minor medical things I'm gonna be kind of on reduced reduced activity for the next three weeks so um, there may not be a whole lot of new updates coming along but you know we'll get that we'll get that squared away um, it's just one of those things you know you gotta sometimes take care of uh, you gotta take care of the old body sometimes and like Mick Jagger said what a drag it is getting old but uh, anyway that's one of the things that's going on there's no update on the um, homemade percussion caps so I'm still standing by my uh, position that they're a good deal and um, you know I, I know they're probably still a month or six weeks behind but if you order from that company you know they their times may be catching up but you know the good part is you'll have it for the next shortage and if you shoot percussion caps it's awful nice it's awful nice to have your own because they they dried up pretty quick I don't think I don't and I don't think that you know you can stockpile them but like anything else it runs out but when you have this thing at least you have a way of making a whole lot of them and uh, it's not completely self-sufficient because you can't really find the stuff that goes in there except you buy it from this company the the powder you mix that creates the the uh, explosion but you know it's good stuff it's, it's good and it works their instructions are simple so but there's no real update but uh, you know so I stick with my last update that hey basically it worked and you know I, I do have to say that one of the things I I'll and I'm terrible at this I usually don't shoot my guns in pairs I have but I usually don't I usually take one out 
and I shoot it till it gets crusty and and doesn't really want to work very much anymore. Then I kind of give it a quick cleaning on the range and keep shooting it if I want to. But you know, in the old days, they really carried a pair of pistols, and you know that was kind of it. You shot six rounds out of one, six rounds out of another, and then it was you were kind of at square one. So. Uh, you know, for that kind of shooting, these caps seem to work great. The the one misfire I had was like on the the third cylinder full, and, and again, that was I have to own it. It was my fault. So um, I, I put I had a little bit of bore butter, and some of it got down into the chamber, and I think that plugged the hole enough so that this was not able to uh, ignite the powder. But you know, hey, I'll I'll take that. I'll take uh, what is that? 17 out of 18 shots no it was actually more it was uh 24 no you do the it was 23 out of 24 i'll take that 23 out of 24 i'll take that oh the next one i do have an update on uh if you remember and this is god more than six months ago seven eight months ago um a friend of mine came to me and he was downsizing and one of the things he was downsizing was a trashed out um half sporterized model 1917 enfield rifle made by remington uh it's it could never be restored to military configuration the ears had been removed and and the uh, receiver had actually been contoured um, that's a kind word for what happened to it, but it's still strong and, and still works. But the guy tried to, not this guy, but the friend who gave it to him had apparently tried to make something out of this. And I think this gun has been kicking around since like the 50s. And it, it has the terrible looking stock that's got, it looks like a, a bear's body with a cat's head on it. So I don't, I don't know what that is, but there's something out there that must look like this because you couldn't, you couldn't come up with that on your own. And it's got the white spacers, you know, the little, I don't think it's actual ebony. I think it's actually, maybe it's plastic, but it's got the, the black ebony forend, you know, that, that horrible 1950s, 1960s, you know, aftermarket sporter stock, which for a 1917 rifle, you know, those have that little kind of pot belly anyway, and this this has got that. So anyway, uh, the thing had no finish on it. It's on and on and on. And I basically kind of mused uh, during some previous podcasts about, you know, what do you do with this thing? Because the guy didn't want it anymore. He said, hey, you want this? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll take it, you know. Uh, probably one thing you could do is strip it down for whatever usable military parts were still on it and then just toss the receiver just say hey it's it's dead and it's never coming back but since it was a barreled receiver since it does have a head spaced bolt and it does have the you know original trigger and 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 all those parts um i said you know what what could we do with it at first i thought making some kind of fake military sniper rifle out of it but the cost on that is just too horrifically expensive and um, I just thought that's that's a waste of money by the time you buy all the little bits and pieces and that stuff's not cheap anymore nor is it easy to find um, you're into something that's you know you could go buy a real 1917 and to be happy and I don't need a real 1917 I have two of them so I, I just kind of said, that's not really it. So what I decided was, 
I would keep all the ugliness, the ugly stock, and everything else. I actually cold blued it, and it actually came out pretty good. Actually, it looks looks pretty good. And then I had a um, an inexpensive one-piece scope base put on it, which turned out to be not so inexpensive because I said the the um, ears had been removed from the magazine or from the uh, receiver. So consequently, there's nothing that really fits it perfectly. So it had to be ground to match the contour of the uh, receiver. So we did all that. Got some rings on the way. Got a couple of cheap scopes I'll put on it. And, you know, what, what this will be is, you know, from my perspective, a sub $200 by the time I get the scope and everything on it sub $200 functional 30-06 bolt action. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. Um, this is not a gun that, and everything about this gun will exude cheapness and, and be the antithesis of what a rifleman would be looking for in a rifle. It's It's got a 26-inch military barrel, which is actually kind of good. Uh, it's going to have the one piece commercial one inch scope mount and and scope it's going to have an, an inexpensive scope functional but inexpensive probably a you know oh, it depends like there's a there's a variety of ones I, I choose but you know at the most it's going to get would be a three by nine by 40 you know that's the most one of the like a bushnell banner you know one of those I, they're imported, I'm sure, from China. Not a not a bad scope, but not not the discerning rifleman's first choice. That's for sure. It'll have the funky, the 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 ugly stock with the white spacers, the ebony forend, and and the uh, the cryptid beast <laughs> carved into the <laughs> carved into it. So it won't it won't look very appealing. It but it will be functional. And my whole deal is now is that this is going to be a low-cost, functional project. This is a gun that if I see a coyote at 250 yards, I can use this gun to shoot it. Um, you know, that's kind of what you're looking for. You're going you're gonna to get a 300-yard rifle out of this, you know. Maybe more. I've seen, I've seen 1903 Springfields with a uh, 3x9x40 shoot at 1,000 yards, but... Um, I don't know that this will be that. So anyway, that's the update on the 1917. I know you hadn't heard about it in a while. If there was any way to restore this to military configuration, believe me, I would have done it. I would have done it, but the amount of modification to the receiver made that just impossible. Just no way to go back. Even with the even with the caveat, you know, with enough money you can do anything. Well, not, not with this one. Um, so you know it is what it is and uh, we'll get it back and it'll be another gun back in the gene pool it'll be back in the gun population which which i kind of like so it's kind of fun doing that okay here comes my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers and uh oh i think i've answered this first question a couple of times but i'll pro- i'll give it another go Okay, so one more time. Why do you hit preppers so hard? Why do you think that they are not exhibiting a lifestyle that you really approve of? Well, first of all, I 
it's not that I disapprove. They're, they're free people. They can do whatever they like. My, my, um, I guess my trepidation or my objection or my criticism, my skepticism of their lifestyle is they live in a culture of fear. And you hear it on their podcasts. Every, occasionally I'll, um, I mean, like I said, I've been out of action for about a week. So I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and, uh, you know, I'll listen to the prepper ones. And it's this culture of fear that something's going to happen. And man, if you don't live out in the woods and have your own tilapia pond and have chickens and ducks and rabbits and, you know, buckets of rice and beans and, and, and it goes on and on. It, it's something that does not happen, have a number one it does not have a defined goal or end it's just accrue stuff in case i can't get it anymore and then i will be self-sufficient and as a piece of that um, there's a security piece which means i need some guns and ammunition so i i don't know and i don't know what model they build it on some people are afraid of a pandemic well we've just seen that and i that really doesn't what happened was everybody stayed home and worked from home it didn't really uh it didn't end the country. It didn't end civilization as we know it. Um, yes, there are things that fly around in space that could hit the Earth. <laughs> I, I get it, you know, but I'm willing to kind of roll the dice on that one and say it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So maybe I'm wrong, but hey, I kind of roll. I'm rolling the dice on that one that there's not going to be a mass extinction because a giant asteroid hits the Earth and wipes us out like it did the dinosaurs and, and only the people living on their their little homesteads are going to survive so i'll roll the dice on that one the uh uh the next one is cities are going to erupt in riots and blah, blah, blah. yeah well we saw that last summer and and basically while i say it was it was scary it wasn't it, you know you you don't have the kind of insurrection that would lead to a collapse of society. And in fact, those of us who lived through the 1968 riots, then I was just a tiny kid when, you know, things like Watts and a few things happened. Uh, you know, we just, we just come back from those. Our society is just too big. It is too, it is too diverse. It's too spread out. Um, basically a lot of big cities could, uh, could have these problems and it's just not going to slow down the country that much it's just not there there are all kinds of reasons um my my fear with all this is is that it's a my fear no actually my skepticism is culture built on fear something's going to happen and if you're not spending every waking minute somehow preparing you know you've got tiny radios that are charging in case in case that goes out you can you can uh, have a little gasified generator and burn uh, chicken poop in it and create some sort of electricity you can you got solar panels you've got you know all this other stuff all that takes money and that's all your and if that's your hobby and that's your disposable income that's fine but a lot of people don't choose to live like that the the other thing i don't like about them is that preppers always have this neener 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 we're gonna be the ones who are telling you i told you so when you don't have anything and we've got it all and and you should have been preparing it's the old you know the what is it the ant and the whatever else you know um tortoise in the hair whatever whatever it is and um 
you know, it's it's there, there's truth to that. If 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 what they think is going to happen comes true, then most of us are in serious trouble. But I just don't think that's really going to happen. And I, I base that on I know a guy who's actually nationally known as a prepper. I worked with him. I lived worked in the next office to him for gosh several years, five or six years. And in 2008, he thought the financial crisis of 2008, he used to, he used to tell me, he goes, it's all coming down, man. It's all coming down. This is all going to be finished two years from now. We're going to be, you know, fighting over bags of rice. Well, we weren't, you know. Um, yes, people lost a lot of money and lost a lot of things, but we weren't fighting over bags of rice. Um, with the pandemic, they said the same thing. You know, oh, wow, I, you know, got this, na, 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 na. Well, country is recovering i mean you you can argue about how that's happening and everything else but it's undeniable that it's happening so why live in a culture of fear then it goes back to the kind of the the one two and three stages of this the one stage is the guy's a survivalist kind of a seer guy survival escape and evasion kind of guy knows what berries to pick and how to start a fire with a wood drill and and all the rest of the all that stuff you see on tv with the dual survival and all that you know that um those survival shows of you know bear grills and all that you know guys eating eating bugs and everything to get protein you know all that wonderful stuff then there's the 2.0 where you have your own little farmstead and you you're growing the ducks the chickens the rabbits and god only knows what else you know you got a milk cow you got this you got that you got pigs you got this and you know you're you're putting up all this stuff you're smoking your own meat you're doing all this you're using the animal fertilizer to fertilize your garden and and you got your own well and you can pump out of the well and all this you know that that's that's a great life but then the realization on that is well shoot um you know you can't defend this if the motorcycle gang comes down the road they're just gonna overwhelm this and take everything they want and go and they won't leave anything behind except dead people so then they want to get into these communities or get into these associations where hey we have a team or we have a a commune a collective that we all live in and uh that's where it starts to get really scary i mean I will tell you, I keep a couple of weeks of, of food in my house, and there's no nothing wrong with that. You can go down to the supermarket and buy a month's worth of food for practically nothing. Practically nothing, especially if you're shopping sales. Now, hey, this isn't going to be Gordon Ramsay or Wolfgang Puck type meals, but you can get basic protein you can get you know basic staples and for a few hundred bucks you could buy a month's worth and you if you buy canned goods you can buy cans um, that will store for you know a year or two a couple years um, you can stuff that's jarred in jars you know you can you can put away easily I would say that most people probably have a month's worth of food in their house you know, now some of it might not be the greatest, but it's stuff you can eat. Now, you may be, and I'm not advocating this, but, you know, some of that canned pet food is probably edible by humans. So if worse comes to worse, you could buy a bunch of that and have it as an emergency. But, you know, if you go to places like Costco, they do have, you can buy in bulk and you can get stuff 
then there's the, the the shyster companies that sell you the you know hey this got a shelf life of 25 years and you know with it's it's in the sealed cans and all that and you you can do all that what i'm saying is most people probably have a month's worth of food if if you ration and if you take it care you know you eat down your refrigerator and and freezer first and then kind of go to go to canned foods and then if you've got anything like MREs or some of that squirreled away, you, you know, an adult can live on an MRE a day. It's not going to be fun, but it's it's doable. And so, you know, you can you can uh, you can stretch out easily a month by doing that. So I would say that, um, you know, if you have that uh, community water, you know, you would just if you have a barbecue, you can boil water, you know, even a gas propane barbecue, you can, you can boil water and you won't be taking a lot of baths, but at least you'll have some, some clean water that, that you can boil and use. And, you know, and I think it's very prudent to have firearms because one of the things that people do in times of need is misbehave, just like how people in times of no need misbehave. So, you know, if, if you're kind of getting by, um it behooves you to have something that would keep potential bad people at bay um so most people a lot of people have that you know even fema says what keeps 72 hours worth of food and you know some water and they don't they never say guns you know they, they would never say that but you know it's it's really kind of implied um so uh, their their whole thing is you, you have to then have this community and face it what scares me is some of these communities are infused with non-mainstream religion you know it's like you know when <laughs> this this guy this guy I work next to he he put it and it's on YouTube um, yeah is it on YouTube I guess it is he did a um, uh, sermon where he said you know hey God really doesn't you know, there's no there's no law against polygamy. When you start hearing polygamy, religion, firearms, survival, all of that's going in a really dark place. You know, that's where people start talking about cults and and some of the rest of this. And you know, I just want no part of that. I I'm I'm too much of an independent person to ever want to live in a collective where. You know, it's it's like the old saying about gun control. Um, you know, they say it's not about guns, it's about control. Well, these guys are on the other side of the spectrum where they want their own little their own little town that they can tell everybody what to do they can control everybody and if you don't if you don't toe the line you know you're going to be ostracized or punished in some way and you know stuff like the polygamy and all this whether it's there or not is it's just weirdness um yeah so no thank you no thank you um i have no no want no part of that okay Opinion on the semi-automatic RPK. Ah, I know about that. I like semi-automatic RPKs. They're bigger, they're clunkier than an AK. They're fun to shoot. They're great fun. Um, I would say if you want one, get one. There, there are a few on the market now. They're, they cost. But, you know, they, they were gone for the last year. But you can get, you can find them new and used. And the RPK is a very fun variant of the AK to shoot and uh the good part is it takes the uh 
that wonderful 762 by 39 which is pretty common so it'll be there so I, I like it uh, I like it quite a bit and I would definitely go with it um, yeah they're 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 good guns they're fun and they're historical and it's something that uh, everybody can have a great time with they don't kick very hard it's it, they're awesome they're just awesome okay have you ever fired a 500 Smith & Wesson and if so what were your impressions well this is an easy question because I've never fired a 500 Smith & Wesson and outside of gun shops I've never seen one I've never seen one on a range um, I don't know where these things go but I have a my suspicion is my suspicion is is that they are not very pleasant to shoot and they probably should be called the 500 Smith & Wesson TBI or something I don't know but um, I've never seen one on a range so I don't know and they've been around since 2002 2003 it was simply a marketing deal by Smith & Wesson so they could they you know they thought having the 44 magnum the most powerful handgun in the world was cool well obviously the 44 magnum's been eclipsed since the dirty harry days so um they wanted to reclaim that and they did with the smith and wesson 500. it's simply a benchmark uh what practical use it has i i don't really know um like a lot of these guns and going back to the 50 cal bmg and everything else you got really got to they're gonna they're gonna be expensive the ammo is expensive the guns are expensive the accessories are expensive because they have to be extra heavy duties so never actually fired one never actually have seen one fired in person and I spend quite a bit of time on ranges so um, you know it tells me that people buy them and probably shoot them once and then just squirrel them away okay what do you think of the RTI that's Royal Tiger Imports Ethiopian rifles uh, I think I think they're expensive I think the M1 carbines probably weren't a bad deal they were about I think they're running about a thousand bucks they're all gone now but they're the nice part about them is a lot of them were un they had not gone through um, um, US arsenal refinishing so they were kind of in their World War II configuration where they came from I don't know um, you know we gave a lot to the free French maybe they gave it to the Ethiopians who knows but they they kind of came across I don't think they got them as US government aid I think they got them as from probably a third country uh, so the, those were a good deal huh the Carcanos I don't know uh, some people are, you know there's unboxing videos on all over YouTube on these things um, the thing I would say is they do have some very unusual guns that are pretty scarce in the United States. So if you want, you know, some of the more rare Russian or French guns, that's probably a cool thing to get. Um, understanding that you're not getting a pristine example, but you are getting an example nonetheless. And, you know, the prices for some of these more rare ones really aren't that outrageous so you can go with that the Carcanos I always believe in if you're gonna buy one of those condition is is pretty big um, you can just look at that and see what the 
see what the story is you, you just it's like getting things from the cmp or any place or the big importers back in the day hey you ordered this gun and this is what shows up and you know it may be it may meet all your expectations or it may fall pretty far short as far as uh, condition goes but you know hey you're gonna get it and if you're looking for one of these guns that's really kind of scarce i mean they're not going to get cheaper carcanos will never be this cheap again so if you want one buy it um if you like a world war ii world war one world war ii period gun um and you can't afford anything else buy one of these carcanos um the ammo is hard to come by but it's not impossible and uh, you know you'll be able to you'll be able to shoot and it's uh, it's they're never going to be cheaper you know when you see them five years from now they'll be on the secondary market for twice of what they're going for now just the way that works that's just simple economics and uh, people will be buying them you know it was not long ago that you could buy lee enfields for 60 bucks all day long all day long i think i bought one and if i remember the bayonet was as expensive as the rifle i'm not not kidding you that's that's the way it was same thing with a lot of these uh, other guns um you know when you get a military rifle for you know what was a hundred dollars back then but these are only 200 now you know where else can you get a centerfire rifle like that and the answer is you're you're not even though it is a carcano doesn't have the greatest reputation they're actually good guns carcanos are actually good guns no one wants to admit it and there's a lot of prejudice against it because of partly because of the jf used to be the jfk thing and you know a carcano was less desirable when you had you know scads of surplus mausers surplus springfields and and uh, all these other things out there so carcano is kind of a, a second place gun but you think about it most of those guns are 75 to 100 years old maybe even 110 120 years old um and they're still they're still uh serviceable but you when you're buying from them you will you know i mean not all these guns are in great shape they a lot of them are missing little bits here and there some which may be difficult to find and uh, they're definitely going to show some use so you know it's kind of buyer beware but if i were looking for a carcano i would just go ahead and buy one i would just say hey i'm taking it 200 whatever bucks um you're really not risking too much because you can at least sell it for what you paid for it probably so that's what i think of those and some of the rarer models hey you know if you don't have them they're nice to have all right that's it for the 101st edition of old school guns as always if you have any questions or comments you can leave them for us on podbean under the comments section or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com and i will address it in the next podcast so until next time this is old school guns out